0: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. If you've been following the food news, food news recently, it seems like the food startup industry is exploding, with new companies launching every day that caters to a person's every food whim. These startups range from the intensely mission-driven, aiming to affect large-scale change for people on the planet to the celebratory, those that indulge in America's ever-intensifying love affair with food. In addition to new types of products being created every day, there also seems to be mirrored delivery options for getting those products to your doorstep at the click of a button. Today, we're going to take a closer look at this trend. When did the rise of the food startup really start to take hold, and what, what prompted it? Are we in a food startup bubble that is likely to soon burst? What drives someone to want to start their own company, and what are some of the challenges you can expect to face along the way? Joining us today to delve into some of these questions is Derek Denkla, an in- impact investor and advisor and social entrepreneur with a unique focus on environmental sustainability. Later on the show, we'll be joined by the founders of two startups Ethan Brown from Beyond Meats and Alex Sorensen of Blanks Lake Kitchen. Derek, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Um, we're excited that you could join us today. Yeah, so, me too. Um, why don't we start off? Can you, can you tell me how, a little bit about how you got into the food startup investment space and what really originally attracted you to the sector?
3: Well, I, I got uh, involved actually based on the downturn in 2008 because I was a green real estate developer. And when the real estate market collapsed, we looked at it, but there's about 80 vacant lots in this area, Bushwick, Williamsburg, a, m- a huge amount of speculation, huge amount of stalled projects. And we didn't think it was really going to come back because there was a credit crunch then, and banks weren't even lending to banks if nobody – remembers that time, but right. it was pretty much we thought Lock it was, gonna,
2: thought it was sort memories.
3: of a miniature end of the world for uh, business as we know it. And so I began thinking, you know, my impulse in doing green real estate was to provide a social and environmental focus to uh, um, uh, business solutions to those problems. And um, so I pivoted a bit and thought, why don't we um, think about those empty lots as being opportunities for uh, urban agriculture and revitalize them as um a source of business opportunity for the communities that would be devastated if those lots remained empty the way they did from the 60s through the 80s. Um, So I began exploring that as an option, and then through that I encountered that you can't just uh, look at urban agriculture as an isolated thing, but it's part of a larger food system, and there's a whole ecosystem of distribution, uh, food processors, restaurants, um, on and on and on through this whole system of... uh, of uh, creating food and uh, producing and and processing it. So it got me really interested, and I touched into uh, or lucked into um, a a conference um, by Slow Money, uh, which is a national movement attempting to uh, try to create more opportunities for um, sustainable local businesses to thrive through changing the way that investors think about um, placing capital with those businesses, kind of altering their investment expectations with an understanding of the r- new risks that those businesses are taking.
2: So one thing kind of led to another.
3: Yes, indeed. That was a <laughs> bit peripatetic, but yes.
2: <laughs> um, am I right in thinking that there are more food startups now than ever before? And if so, what happened?
3: Well, it's, an, it's a really good question. Um, I think the there's a couple of factors that... Uh, That uh, um, kind of have created a food startup revolution. I think the first thing is that a lot of um, what happened in 08 happened to a lot of other people so a lot of times people who were displaced from like traditional um, uh, corporate job track that existed before then began thinking about starting their own companies as a way to hedge against the economy economic downturn they had a lot of skills so you had like a, a very skilled very educated group of people who were displaced and so they started looking to um, put up their own shingle and try something new so there's mm-hmm. a huge workforce very talented and they're looking for opportunity um, they were looking for opportunities in, in in ways that a lot of times were reacting to the system that they saw as a failure the same way I was so they looked to food because food as is, um, is a much more immediate tangible, Sort of market resistant quality to it, right? People always have to eat, right? Mm -hmm. They don't always have to refinance their mortgage or um, buy the new gadget but they do have to eat. So there's there's a certain market resistance that caused people to look to food maybe on a very simple level. And there's a lot of people with a lot of very intense business and investing skills who started to like probe that space. At the same time, uh, the the tech space which uh, has been uh, an investment opportunity space for venture capital since the 90s mm-hmm. got really oversaturated and there's like there was there wasn't a lot of room to to wiggle. So capital does what capital does is looks for uh, a place to um, to uh, invest when one market is saturated so they they were looking for a pivot so they looked at you know, clean energy at first. And then Mm -hmm. they looked around and they saw there was opportunities in food because the food industry is made up of these 10 large, you know, mega corporations that were just poised to be taken down in the way that the tech companies had done similar kind of um, what they call disruption or Mm -hmm. other people call innovation when they're feeling more polite (laughs) and they completely kind of changed information management systems and, and media and entertainment. So they were looking for another industry to, Uh, disrupt create efficiencies potentially or create opportunities
2: right and what are some of the startup trends that are gaining traction um both with investors and consumers in in recent years so ideas that have really just taken off
3: well i think um there's there's a couple of drivers um of um of innovation um i think uh the first is that um it, it, the ideas that have taken off, I think, are, are related a lot to health and environment, and a different way of eating, and a different way of understanding how the eating impacts you and your planet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people driving towards organic foods, uh, local foods, so they can understand the source that their food comes from. In fact, there's a Mintel study from 2013 that all the investment community got really excited about that local, for the first time, displaced organic as a value that people attach to food, like a very high value mm-hmm. that they would they would pay Uh, because people usually pay a higher premium for organic, and they are willing to do the same for local. And I think it's out of distrust of the globalization of the food system, you know, uh, the commodification of of, uh, foodstuffs and the center of the uh, supermarket being this huge swath of things that aren't healthy for you. So there's a combination of distrust and um, uh, a desire to be healthier and and part of a, a bigger solution. So that's driving a lot of it. Um, then you combine that with these companies that came online in 2008, and there's a lot of savvy social marketing that these companies have engaged in that um, previous big food companies d- couldn't do as, as at, in such an agile way, and so they, they began to capture people's imagination more. So there's a lot of um, opportunity in that space um, with, that people have taken advantage of.
2: With just their marketing techniques or their or their message?
3: Both. I think, you know, you have to... We have a joke in the food investing community that uh, 50% of the investment takes place 18 inches from your face. So, like, you you know, and the same is true for the consumers. Like, you can capture someone's attention once, but if your brownie stinks, mm-hmm. um, uh, no one's going to come back. So they uh, part of it is they capture you with message, and, mm-hmm. and part of it they capture you with flavor. There's been a real... Um, the, another trend is that people are are, are upset with the, the, the sugar, fat, salt diet that they've been given. They're concerned about f- uh, food-related illness of diabetes and coronary failure and, and uh, obesity. And so um, they're looking for alternatives, and um, some of those alternatives are, 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 are um, punching up flavor that comes from other places. So freshness and um, authentic flavors are things that people are really looking for as a way to – Um, have interest in your food, but without the sugar, fat, salt explosion of the Dorito, let's say.
2: And, you know, speaking of message, um, it seems that there are more, at least to me, it seems there are more socially conscious businesses founded today with the aim of really um, trying to make a difference uh, for the people and the planet. Um, And I'm I'm wondering, in your opinion, if, if you think this motivation is real or if it's simply window dressing. And how, as a consumer, how can we kind of see through the greenwashing to what a company is, is you know, actually doing or not doing?
3: That's a, that's a great question. I mean, um, greenwashing is a big problem throughout industries, but I'm, I'm less worried about that in some ways because I feel like if everybody uh, accepts a community standard that's really high and other people are trying to meet it, as long as they're not lying, that's okay. Like if Pepsi says, we've reduced our water consumption by 40% and our bottles use 40% less plastic, it's still Pepsi, and they're still peddling, like, you know, sugared poison, right? But, um, but it's like they're, they're stepping in the right direction. And so there's no, right. f- there's no food company out there that's, like, totally pure. You know, you look, yeah. at, you look at, like, Chobani, which, you know, basically, like, caused an explosion of, of support for the New York dairy industry, where dairy prices were going through the roof because they were trying to keep up with the Chobani's demand for yogurt. Great local food story, uh, both here and now they have a plant in Idaho. But if you go to eat a Chobani yogurt, it's got as, sometimes has as much sugar as, as like uh, drinking the same equivalent ounces of a Coke. So, you know, so the question is like, what's good food, what's bad food? It's, it's challenging. It's, it's about, um, you know, transparency and about people trying to do the right thing. And if, if the consumers continue to hold brands to those standards, the standards will continue to escalate. The thing that's kind of upsetting though, is that some of the trends are kind of phony and weird, like gluten-free and all that stuff. And they, Try to respond to consumers, seeming like they're responding to health issues when gluten uh, intolerance maybe affects five percent of the population. There's some people who say that there's other health-related issues related to long-chain gluten or foods that come from industrial fl- flowers and wheats. But you know, in general, that's a, that's Michael Pollan has really shot a, 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 like an arrow at that and tried to deflate that um, that trend. And that's a that's a greenwashing trend because it's 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 attempting to do something that seems like it's good for the consumer, but it's really just creating a lot of fluff and product marketing
2: right um are, are food startups unique to tech heavy urban places do you think like new york city and san francisco or are they happening elsewhere and in in your experience who do you find most of these businesses wanting to target in terms of the consumer
3: oh, that's an interesting question another trend that i would say by the way that's driving the food um startup space is that back when i was a kid and like i was coming up through the ranks, like there were like two options for you. You could wear a suit and go like to work in Daddy's office, mm-hmm. or you could be in a rock band. Like that was like those were your <laughs> those are your options. Like, um, but now it's like um, the um, the creative careers and rock band is like a stand-in for a variety of creative careers mm-hmm. that were viable at the time. So, uh, photographer, graphic designer, you could we you, you could architect. You could go down the line of, of viable careers that now are less and less viable, um, harder and harder to. Uh, to realize a, a career return on so a lot of creative people uh, who formerly were drawn to what I'll call the rock band holding uh, space uh, they're they're drawn to doing startups so now like people you go to bars and they don't talk about like oh I'm in this cool band and play guitar for X Y Z now it's they're a like startup. now it's a startup so yeah. that it's that's both by necessity and and cultural shift that also business like when I was a kid business was super uncool. Like if I told you I was starting a business, like you would turn away and you'd be like, that guy's lame. (laughs) But now if somebody says they're starting a business, it's like, hey, tell me more. Like people are interested in business. So there's a change in that cultural climate, which I think is in some ways really exciting because it means that people are, are willing to put their heart and their ethics into a business. And I think that's part of the shift of why there's um, ethical businesses because people who are entering business are entering it from a different way. They weren't, they're not doing a, just a pure get rich thing. They're trying to express their full selves, which includes their commitment to social and environmental issues. So I think that. That's another a real driver for the trend. So mm-hmm. is it only in urban spaces? Um, I think it's largely driven by urban spaces because you have that big educated workforce that's looking for opportunity, finds each other, finds different members of their right. team there, finds advisors, finds money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to drive a lot of the startup initiative. But you see it all over the U.S. Like you go to a tiny town in Iowa and there's oftentimes like a food startup there so or a small company that you know uh, realizes they could have a national market because people are interested in local flavors.
2: Do you think that the consumer has stayed the same, though, in terms of who these businesses are businesses are, are catering to?
3: No, I think the consumer's changed, too. I think the consumer is, you know, if you read the newspaper, which would put you in the minority of most people, who can how <laughs> they consume their media, but if you consume any media, let's put it that way, if you're on BuzzFeed or whatever, you're, you're getting barraged with uh, foodborne illness stories. I mean, over and over again, the obesity in the armed forces. I mean, mm-hmm. who would have thought a report would come out called Too Fat to yeah. Fight, right? So, I mean, it's like insane. So right. um, I think the consumer is um, feeling a little overwhelmed about how much food is a problem. And I think they're looking for solutions. So I think all consumers, like organic foods are off the charts in Walmart, right? So um, consumers are buying, you know, assertively products that they think are better for them
2: right um okay one one last question before um we go to break i want to know from your perspective how do you assess the saturation of the of the food startup industry so i can think of like a dozen meal and grocery delivery service services off the top of my head and that seems like a whole lot like have we have we reached a, a tipping point um saturation point and when will this stabilize if ever
3: I don't know. I mean, that's that's a good question too. I I think that you know we're we're used to a, a state right now which is a, vacillates between like massive innovative iteration within a certain category and then huge consolidation. Like like over the last thirty years, there's been massive industry consolidation in, in industries like airlines, where there are fewer and fewer choices and higher and higher prices. So. Um, and then there's other trends for consolidation, like uh, through tech, which are somewhat troubling. Where uh, you have something like Uber, which takes this industry that is very fragmented and mom and pop shop, turns it into something quote unquote efficient for the consumer, but then becomes sort of disastrous for those mom and pop shops because uh-huh. they're so big that they out they out um, negotiate those those folks at a scale that they can't can't deal with a billion dollar corporation on the other side of the table. So um, I think there's there's actually kind of a sweet spot where. Um, innovation and iteration really um, In a certain space can be really Productive for the consumer and for the businesses Like um, if you have uh, For instance let's try to take food Delivery you have a uh, 12 million Consumers in New York uh, c- City area um, if you had 12 different companies each trying to go after a million cu- customers, those customers would be better served if 12 companies were competing for the same market space. Mm-hmm. But there's a pushback from consumers because they get confused about the different options. Like, what's different between uh, Fresh Direct and Good Eggs, let's right. say? So, um, and a lot of times they try to trample in each other's marketing territory, and so it's hard to discern. But and so sometimes we're the victim of our own desire for efficiency. So like the the joke that I say is the most efficient system is a fascist, mar- fascist market-controlled <laughs> state. Right? You make the trains run on time, That's and true. the yeah. eggs come from the government consolidated it's marketplace. Efficient. <laughs> it's efficient, right? But it's not. There's no price. There's only price controls as the government agrees to it, and and it doesn't make for any innovative entrepreneurship. And it kind of deadens the marketplace in places mm-hmm. and places where that has exhibited itself. So I think there's, there's some, and there's an impulse here in this country to break up those kind of monopolistic practices through, like, antitrust laws. So we want to have competition. Uh, the trouble is for the consumer and the investor is, like, who's the horse to bet on to win? Like, if I spend a lot of time figuring out how to order from Fresh Direct and they go out of business, God forbid, tomorrow, mm-hmm. like, that's going to be, like, a, a loss of consumer enthusiasm and I'm going to go back to my local supermarket. So there's, there is something to be said about saturation being... Uh, problematic, but in general, I think it's it's great for business and it's great for consumers. More jobs, more opportunities. Right.
2: Oh, great. Um, So, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, you are an investor and many food, or an advisor um, to many food startups, and you have an exciting opportunity for both investors and entrepreneurs coming up in April. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? I
3: sure can. Yeah, Yeah. we're every year for the last five years, uh, Slow Money NYC, which is a a local networking uh, organization related to the national movement, we put on a, um, a really great community building event called Food and Enterprise, where we um, try to catalyze connections between investors and entrepreneurs to finance a better food system. So despite the generic title, there's a real impetus on on uh, emphasizing how to, to build a better food system for everyone. And we've created a, uh, what we think is a really dynamic uh, gathering for people to both do business and do good, and so uh, we've we've created a lot of uh, intense interactive possibilities for businesses. There's a pitch fest that uh, entrepreneurs can apply to who are seeking capital. Um, there uh, is a showcase for goods and services that at the event uh, all day long can um, uh, showcase what they're doing to the to the investor public or potential buyers. Um, there's an expert exchange where you can um, potentially connect with a. A consultant that can improve your business or your ability to invest and uh, there's a variety of incredible speakers that we have lined up to um, talk about ethical business as well as um, food system um, uh, investing so there's it's a, it's like a conference on steroids because we have mm-hmm. like um, it's like a trade show and a uh, entrepreneur and investor education combined with your traditional kind of workshop, conferency, talking head kind of thing. So it's a lot of different points of interaction. It's a lot of fun. We always have great food. Uh, ah, well,
2: there you go. And, yeah. and Heritage Radio is a media sponsor, it right? It is
3: indeed, and we really appreciate that. All so right. it's April 8th and 9th, and it's at the, the glorious Pfizer building, 630 Flushing Avenue, which is a real heart of the local food movement these days
2: all right well i will be there (laughs) for one (laughs) okay we're gonna we're gonna take a quick commercial break right now to hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with the second half of our show
3: And this is Torchlight by Rectech Playing.
4: I was little, my grandma lives in Florida, and every time I call her, she's always like, I know it's you because I can hear the smile in your voice. Growing up, when my grandpa was still alive, he loved to fish. So we had this saying, grandpa catches the fish and grandma cooks the fish. <laughs> so she always used to make the best grouper around. My sister and I would always be like her little helpers in the kitchen during the process. So. And sometimes we'd go fishing with my grandpa. I actually love the seafood counter ever since this store opened. There's always been like something special about it, like seeing the full fish and like seeing them cut everything and fillet everything by hand. And I'm a big fish eater, so it's just it has a special place for me. My name is Jennifer Heal, and I'm the social media and digital marketing specialist for the Northeast region of Whole Foods Market.
1: This has been a message from our proud partner, Whole Foods Brooklyn. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
2: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Derek Denkla about food startups. On the second half of the show, we're going to be hearing from the from from, the, from founders of two food companies representing different aspects of the startup community um, about their experiences launching their businesses. I now want to welcome Ethan Brown to the show. Ethan is a CEO and co-founder of Beyond Meat, a company focused on perfectly replacing animal protein with plant protein, who lists Kleiner Perkins, Bill Gates, Biz Stone, and Evan Williams, among many other investors and partners. Um, Ethan, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Um, tell us about your company and how the products you create advance your mission.
5: Sure. So I think uh, the place to start uh, is really where we began um, in the effort to to build a piece of meat directly from plants. And so we are uh, a group um, that, you know, in no way... Um, you know, wants to denigrate meat or or thinks that uh, people you know who consuming meat, um, you know should feel badly about that. Instead, uh, what we're trying to do is create a better form of meat and one that comes uh, directly from uh, from plants. and the the basic observation is that you can uh, source the constituent parts of meat, and those are essentially amino acids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're lipids, carbohydrates, minerals, and water from plants, and you can organize those in the exact architecture of uh, meat or animal protein. And if you've done that, you've essentially created a piece of meat directly from plants, and that's what our company's about.
2: What does perfectly replace animal protein mean, mean to you
5: or to the so, company? Um, yeah, so, so I look at it um, from the same perspective of a cell phone and a landline. Um, you know, what we want to do is create a... Um, a set of choices for consumers where they naturally gravitate toward a plant-based piece of meat uh, over a uh, animal protein piece of meat. And we do that by making the product better and more convenient for, for the consumer. And so it, we're hoping that we'll see that transition that so often occurred in innovation where the consumer just makes the choice, not because they um, you know feel particularly negative about uh, the product that they're obsolescing, but the mm-hmm excitement and um, and benefits of, of the new product and so what we're doing is providing consumers with uh, options that that truly uh, offer a seamless integration into their favorite meals whether it's tacos or um, lasagna uh, uh, chicken salad etc
2: and how did you become you know interested in this field and, I, and I'm curious at what point that you you know did you decide I can do this and I'm, I'm going to do this I'm going to start this company
5: right Right. Um, So I think for me, it was a a really long time coming. Um, I uh, worked in the alternative energy space for a long time for a company that uh, made proton exchange membrane fuel cells. And the reason I was... I'll I'll pretend to
2: know what that is.
5: (laughs) It's basically a hydrogen engine. Okay. And the the reason that I was interested in that technology was uh, because of its implications for climate change. And so... um, you know, what, what we did was uh, we we're trying to make basically transportation more efficient, right? And so when I started to look at the agricultural system and particularly the use of animals to create meat, uh, it's one of the most inefficient processes that, that I've ever seen. Um, and so um, my thought was, you know, I care a lot about the welfare of animals. I care a lot about uh, the welfare and, and health of human beings. Uh, obviously the same about our planet and lastly a lot about climate change. So I wanted to make a contribution. I thought, well, you know, if I could figure out a way to, to build a piece of meat directly from plants and change the center of the plate protein from one that comes from animals to one that comes from meat, sorry, that comes from, from plants, uh, you know, how much better off would the world be, uh, would, would individuals be, and, and, and of course, would animals be? And so that, that's the quest that I began, and what's been fascinating to me is actually it is scientifically possible to do this. You can, you know, create a piece of meat without using an animal.
2: Yes, um, and tell tell us more about that. I am very very curious to know more about the products and, and you know kind of generally how what the main ingredients are and how they differ from some of the more commonly found um, plant based proteins like tofu or or satin, for example.
5: Sure, and so I, I think um, you know at its at its core is the approach that we take, and that is you know we're not thinking about this as a, just as a culinary exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at um, if you look at how we've organized the company, we have you know um, a very large research research and development team. Um, you know we are not afraid to put uh, many millions of dollars in it every year to to make sure that they're advancing the state of the art. Um, we in fact we call uh, our, our research and development center the Manhattan Beach Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a reference to, to where it's located, but also a reference to uh, the effort that went on uh, during the Second World War. Um, around atomic bomb. And we wanted people to understand just how significant uh, this transition could be if we could pull it off um, and how meaningful it would be for for the world. And so we have the very best scientists um, uh, working on this issue, um, you know, everywhere from biophysicists to uh, protein chemists Mm -hmm. to to food scientists. Um, And what they're doing is they're just sourcing uh, these plant-based fats and and proteins and they're reorganizing them to put them in the structure of, of, of meat. And so, uh, it's a much more sophisticated effort than what you've seen in the past, uh, where you know they've been primarily putting uh, soy and wheat together um, uh, and providing it to consumer. You know, not to say those products aren't good; they are good. Mm-hmm. But our our quest really is to create, uh, to use the blueprint of meat, our understanding of the architecture of meat, to go ahead and, and rebuild that and, and offer that to to consumers. So, to, it's, it's a, at, a, at a more sophisticated level, I think, and uh, our products. Every year, they get better and better. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not perfectly indistinguishable, but I think uh, I do see the day when that will come possible.
2: The, there are some people who say that producing meat alternatives are incredibly resource-intensive and and could in fact be less environmentally sustainable. How does your company address? I mean, is this an issue for your company? And if so, how do you how do you address the issue of energy usage in in creating
5: these products? Sure. Sure. So, great question. And, and so, we look at that a lot, and and whether it's water use, land use, energy use, um, or emissions, uh, you know, we come out favorably relative to the to the animal protein uh, that that we are uh, offering a, a replacement for. Mm-hmm. So, I, I wouldn't, I, I would challenge the people that are saying that to to, to do the research. And mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if you think about it, so what the animal has become in our system, right? And there's you know, seventy billion animals raised and, and slaughtered every year. Uh, they're they're a bioreactor, right? They're they're a they're a, uh, a biological system for converting tremendous amount of plant matter, energy, um, uh, and, and feed into uh, into into muscle or meat, right? Mm-hmm. And they're enormously inefficient at it. They have to carry around a big body to do that. Uh, they, they use so much energy in the process um, that what we're saying is, look, we've identified that as a bottleneck in the production process. Uh, and we really don't need that piece of equipment anymore. We can replace that and build it directly from plants.
2: Have you experienced any regulatory or legal challenges uh, thus far throughout the startup process? And, and if so, how have you nominated those? Um, I mean, those? There, there,
5: there are annoyances here and there. I mean, there's a little, like, there's, you know, the, the regulatory um, structure was set up over, you know, uh, many, many decades. And so it's incoherent, right? There's there's There are... Um, we talk a lot about know, it on you,
2: this on this show. Yeah.
5: yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you can you can buy one thing in one aisle of the supermarket and not in another, and it depends on whether it's you know regulated as a supplement or as a food, and so you know about all those things. So there's been annoyances like that, but has there been some sort of wholesale pushback from the meat industry? Not at all. Like, in fact, we talk regularly with some of the largest meat companies in the world. Um, as you know, the the um, the uh the former ceo of mcdonald's is on our board mm-hmm. um you know th- this is you know my approach is one of collaboration and of of uh you know trying to transition the system to one that's healthier for people and, and healthier for the planet and, and animals
2: do you get the sense that some of these uh, manufacturers are looking to expand into the plant-based protein space themselves or are you um sort of you know le- leading the way in this
5: uh, I think it's both. I mean, I, I think that a lot of companies are watching what companies like my own are doing um, to to potentially, you know, either incorporate that into their offerings. So, so if you look at the growth, for example, I was with a major meat buyer, a global meat buyer, yesterday mm-hmm. uh, for, for for a household name. And I was asking them questions about the, the different trends they were seeing. And, uh, for example, one of the areas that's exploded in their portfolio is organic turkey right? Mm-hmm. And so you can, only guess, you can only guess the reason people look for it. Well, they don't want antibiotics, you know, they don't want hormones, and they don't want the cholesterol and, and saturated fat of ground beef, right? Mm-hmm. So there's only so many places you can go. And all we're offering is an extension on that and saying, you know, okay, fine, you can have turkey, but you can have an even cleaner source of protein, which is one that's right from plants. And so I, I do think you're going to see more and more you know, mainstream meat companies uh, offer plant-based versions of their products.
2: And, but one thing that seems particularly unique about your company is, um, just reading kind of some of the press on your website, is the acclaim for uh, for the product, for the for, and that's taste, which is um, you know, which is king, right, for for, for the consumer. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and so I think that that's to me um, one thing that seems to sort of set set your company apart. Was that a, a long process in, in terms of the development or?
5: It was, it was, and, and I think it's it's really part of uh, a religion that we have here, which is you know whether we feel the consumer should or not, we can't ask them to make any sacrifices, right? Mm-hmm. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna want something that tastes great and you know, that's really satisfying, and so some of the challenges I would have with maybe some of the more or the less traditional you know forms of, of meat replacement whether it be you know uh, soy lint or not it's it you know that food is enjoyable it's it you know biz stone is a who's a member of the company you know one of the, his great insights was you know that that, that food was the first you know uh, social network right mm-hmm. and Absolutely. Uh, it brought us all around uh, the table together and we don't want to lose that and, right, and, and you know, we spent you know yeah we spent you know uh, millions of years uh making meat taste great, uh, we don't want to lose it either. So let's just basically change the protein and the lipids and continue to consume the dishes we love. Um, so we focus a lot on, on making this as seamless as possible.
2: Alright, um, final question for you. What's your favorite Beyond Meat product?
5: <laughs> my favorite one is one we haven't launched yet. Ooh. And Oh. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's coming out later this year and it is off the hook. It's, I'm, I'm super, super excited about it. Um, but my favorite one that's on the market today is um, you know, I love them all. I mean, I—I'll I, tell you what, what. What I do is, I'll have—I'll have, I'll have uh, particularly our chicken strips. I'll have them for breakfast. I'll just put them in a pan with a little bit of oil and I'll crisp them up. And those uh, keep you going for so long throughout the day. They're such a clean source of protein. Mm-hmm. So, if you're interested in losing weight or having more energy, I would recommend doing that in the morning. It just carries you throughout the day. It's pretty amazing.
2: I, uh, I won't say no to that, personally. <laughs> no, cool. Okay. Cool. okay, great. Cool. Ethan, I, I know you've got to jump off the line now, but I want to thank you so very much for joining us on the show today.
5: Oh, sure. Sure, thank you very much, I really appreciate
2: it All right Okay, take care You too Um, Okay, so last but certainly not least I want to welcome (laughs) Chef Alex Sorensen to the show Alex is the founder of the recently launched Blank Slate Kitchen Which crafts high-end products with the finest quality ingredients To provide food and drink enthusiasts with the building blocks To explore, develop, and realize their own kitchen creativity Alex, welcome to the show
1: Thanks for having me here
2: um, so you recently launched Blink Slate Kitchen. Can you tell us about the company and, and what um, products you make?
1: Sure, I'd love to. Um, so as you said, uh, we, we craft ingredients for... It's really to help people build um, and develop their own kitchen creativity. Um, as a professional chef, uh, we have this whole arsenal of, of ingredients and tools that we use in the kitchen, uh, many of which are prepared ingredients that uh, we can assemble into, into dishes on the fly. Um, And this is what allows us to really create food um, at a professional level in a quick fashion. Mm -hmm. And I really realized over, you know, as more and more home interest has grown in cooking, as the caliber of home cooking has grown and as the interest in, uh, if you look at, if you go to Barnes & Noble and look at uh, the cookbook market, there's, you know, it's blown up. And people are are buying Thomas Keller's cookbooks or Michael Anthony's or Grand Eckert's, they and I realized when I look at them, am I going to sit, even as a professional chef, am I going to sit down, not sit down, stand up and cook these things that take, in the restaurant, a whole team of people an entire day to prep, mm-hmm. um, sometimes days to prep. And the reality is most people at home are really interested in this and are trying to replicate some of that, but it's it's rare that people are going to sit down and spend you know days prepping one Thomas Keller dish, and I realized that uh, th- there might be a potential to for me to f- fulfill a niche in that market um, of kind of bringing some of those building blocks out of the professional kitchen into the retail market to help people either replicate some of these dishes they see in restaurants or really to to, to develop their own creativity g- to give them the tools to to not focus on you know spending half a day making a flavored oil or a um, infused syrup or some type of puree, that if they can get those, they can focus on really kind of exploring the, the things that they want to create.
2: So these are like some of the secrets of a chef's kitchen, of a of. professional chef's yeah. kitchen that you're bringing to the market. Um, I mean, a- as a chef, how have you seen the, the food scene or industry change since you've started? And, and in what ways have these changes kind of led to the creation of your line? But actually, actually, before I think maybe you should talk a little bit about what the line is. The yes, the specific <laughs> yeah <laughs> products.
1: Um, so that was the bigger bigger picture of uh, kind of where we're going as a company. Uh, we have a whole uh, you know vast list of of product ideas. Uh, we launched uh, about three months ago with a line of uh, really deeply inf- uh, infused and flavored simple syrups. Um, so the kind of obvious use for those is in cocktails. Um, there's a lot of interest in mixology and in fancy cocktails mm-hmm. now, so these are a tool for that, for people to build their own their own cocktails at home that are kind of fancy, but they don't take 15 ingredients and half an hour to prep one cocktail for the party. Right. Um, and so we have four flavors. There's palm sugar, there's a black pepper, there's a vanilla, and there's a bird's eye chili pepper. Um, so they they. Kind of cocktails is the big use but they have also been designed kind of re- with really a lot of versatility in mind they're they're uh concentrated and thick so they can be used in the same way that honey or maple syrup would be used so they're fantastic drizzled over ice cream or berries or over waffles and oatmeal so they're they're again a tool for you to do a lot of different stuff with
2: and and so so the um Back to kind of my, my question before I let you tell us what the actual <laughs> products were. But um, how has how this, you know, the, the creation of this line kind of been inspired by the change in the food industry that you've seen since you've started as a chef?
1: Sure. Well, as I said, um, the, the kind of explosive growth in cookbooks and then, you know, just interest in food mm-hmm. in general. Um, and organics and sustainability and local stuff—all of that. Just the 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 interest across the board and um, the
2: celebration of food, right? Exactly, we we exactly. talk about the it. We take people pictures are, of
1: it. Are making this food at home and they're yeah taking pictures. They're blogging about it. They're putting it on Instagram. There's mm-hmm. just so much interest now. Um, that now, you know, ten fifteen years ago, there wouldn't have been the interest or the market for for products like mine. Um, right. So that interest has definitely spurred this. And over the course of my career. There's definitely, uh, again, been both in retail and within restaurants, an explosive growth in interest and support of things like sustainability and local. Um, So that's
2: Mm -hmm. definitely. The uh, what um what are some of the challenges? You know, for all of those people listening who are thinking like, (laughs) you know, I want to start my own whatever food food company. Insert.
1: There are a million challenges as. Anyone with a startup will attest to Not to, to
2: overglamorize and it. And
1: they, uh, they vary uh, day-to-day and minute-to-minute.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, the current uh, ones for me are definitely marketing and um, distribution, kind of getting it out there to people. Um, I've had some great reception in, um, in stores. Uh, now it's kind of figuring out how to, to let people know about it and get people, you know, the end-level consumer really buying it off the shelf and giving it a try. Um, so that's kind of the, the biggest uh, the stage I'm at, that's the biggest hurdle for me. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: in terms of production, do you have, h- how, how, have you had any challenges in terms of scaling up for
1: the, the production was relatively easy for me? I've, you know, coming from a, a kitchen background, that process was easy for me. And there's actually tons and tons of tools and resources now. There's so many people that are doing this. And this is kind of one of the biggest lessons I've learned is just that, you know, it 's hard enough starting up something, mm-hmm. especially starting up a food company you don 't want to concentrate on you know, reinventing the wheel. There have been people out there who have done this, and so you know, do a lot of research and there 's tons of resources for you know uh, getting your product testing done to make sure it 's legal and safe to developing your nutrition label mm-hmm. um, there 's so many resources out there that have made the process much easier so for me, it was actually relatively easy to to, to create the product to um, produce it, to package it. And so for me, the bottleneck or the, the hurdle has really been once I got it done, once I have you know, a whole stack of my product in front of me, how mm-hmm. do I get it out there? How do I get people to buy it? Um,
2: well, you have a super experienced um, advisor in the room <laughs> <laughs> with us still. Derek, do you have any uh, words of wisdom for somebody kind of at the very beginning stages of a... Fabulous food company?
3: Well, I, I, I don't want to be presumptuous because it's uh, the risk that you're taking as a startup is uh, tremendous and exciting and putting, your, you know, uh, your life on the line and mm-hmm. your talent on the line and your name on the line sometimes, I guess. So, Um I think that uh, whatever advice I give would be with uh, that grain of salt, is that I'm coming from a place of no risk, yeah. right? So, um, so, and an entrepreneur's posture is all risk, right? And especially if you quit your day job and and uh, and try to do it full time, then you're, you know, you kind of you've cut the cord and you're you're trying to you know figure out if the shoot will pop, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, too many metaphors in one. <laughs> uh, I, think. I think I should have st- stuck with one, but um, so. I would say that the biggest challenge that I've seen with companies that have a profile like yours, um, which I would describe as, like, a passion project, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you have a talent and you're trying to transfer that talent into a product that can be consumed more widely than in just a restaurant so that mm-hmm. you can reach more people. So it's, like, the difference between, like, a musician playing in a club and putting out a record, right? So. Yeah. um The biggest challenge is that passion-driven projects, which are the most exciting and and, and really translate to flavor and consumer excitement, oftentimes the people who start those projects um, don't realize how much of what they do is going to be sales and marketing. And so, for instance, like some of the companies that we respect the most, um, they really are only sales and marketing companies. They don't actually make anything. So I'll give you an example like Organic Valley. Organic Valley does not make any dairy products. (laughs) Organic Valley is a cooperative marketing and branding company that um, coordinates the the processing and production of other people's dairy products made according to their standards. So, um, so it's a huge lift between the sort of, and if, if you metaphorically, that's the division between the passion of the farmer who's making the products and the. The expertise of the company that's delivering it. So that's the biggest sort of um, divide that I see in entrepreneurs is that when they get to this point where their sales hit about a quarter of a million, where it's like hard for them to do it themselves anymore, and they realize that they don't, their skill set for marketing and branding. Is either not developed or they don't like it at all. They either have to obtain some partner who will help them do that part of it. Some business savvy person, and there are people out there, people with MBAs now, or food, you know, uh, uh, you know, or food studies MBAs uh, who want to help in that way. But if they, if they don't find the right mix of support in that way, it can be really challenging for mm-hmm. them. So that would, that's what I would say the biggest challenge that a company like yours tends to face. I don't know your particular challenge, yeah. <laughs> but, but that, that's really because the, they're sort of like, you know, I play the violin, but I don't want to book the concerts. Yeah.
2: Alex, where can we find your products?
3: Um, They are
1: available in about 15 different stores now, um, scattered around Brooklyn and Manhattan, Uh, a lot of small places, uh, Brooklyn Fair, both of their locations, Saragina Bakery, um, Daypanor in Williamsburg. They're also available online, uh, kind of nationwide, on farm2people.com and Undiscovered Kitchen, um, which are both very supportive of small local producers. Um, So those are kind of the best places you can look and find them.
2: Great. All right. Um, I am afraid we, we, we ran over and we're going to have to leave it there today, but I want to say a huge thank you to our guests. Derek Denkla, Ethan Brown, and Alex Sorensen for joining us today. Our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Bernierski. Show music is by Tim Archer, and I want to thank our sponsors and our show engineer, Jack Inslee. The show's available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. HRN. Please find us on Twitter. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening.